listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. This morning we're reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For my daughter's 11th birthday a couple weeks ago, we took her and some of her friends to the exotic feline rescue center uh, down near Center Point, uh, Indiana. They have over 100 different exotic cats, uh, lions, tigers, servals, puma, leopards, bobcats, and Anna was thrilled to meet every single one of them and take their pictures. Now, most of these exotic felines were rescued from places where people owned them uh, illegally or people who had cared for them but could no longer care for them appropriately, and so they were rescued. But our tour guide told us, if you can dream of a story in which someone might rescue an exotic cat, they've done it. And so a lot of their cats were rescued from homes where they were being abused or neglected or otherwise. Tour guide introduced us to one tiger in particular who had uh, worn a small circular path in its enclosure, not, not even in the entirety of the, of the enclosure, but just in one small front part of it, had worn this circular path, and he pointed it out to us. He said, tigers in the wild, when they patrol like this one is, they don't patrol in circles. They patrol in figure eights. Uh, gives them a 360-degree view of their territory, something like that. I don't understand feline psychology. But uh, he, he was explaining to us that this particular tiger paces in a circle, not because it can't count to eight, but that was his joke, not mine, but <laughs> because he spent the first three years of his life in a cage that was only big enough for him to turn in circles. And so for the rest of his life now, even though we've, he said we've given him as much room as we possibly can for him to roam, he, he's still just pacing in circles. His neurotic behavior comes from growing up in a home that didn't fit him, that wasn't made for him. And I thought, man, that is great fundraising. Telling stories like that, it's like I wanted to give him all of my money, please rescue these cats. But also, I'm a preacher, and so I thought, there's probably a sermon illustration in here. And there is. What if, what if our neurotic behavior comes from growing up in a home that doesn't fit us? 
what if all the dumb stuff, the stupid things that we do, the, the things we can't explain or the things that are unexplainable, what if all of that comes from the fact that we live in, we are growing up in a home that doesn't fit us? It's not much of a stretch. It seems like so much of our neuroticisms <laughs> come when we do the stupid stuff th that we feel like we have to in order to get what we, what we need, not even just what we want, but what we need in order to feel uh, content or feel loved or feel included or to feel like what we're doing will have a value that lasts beyond our time here on this earth. The things we do when we want to feel like we truly understand ourselves and are representing ourselves to other people around us, or the things we do because we want to just capture as many possible experiences as we can in the short time that we have so that we can feel like we lived, we did something with our lives. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, or you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, I, I'm, I'm guessing we can all agree on this one thing, that this world doesn't fit. This world we live in, our home that we live in, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And I would guess most of the dumb stuff that we do comes from growing up in a home that doesn't fit us, no matter how hard we try to change ourselves or the world around us, or if we've just given up the attempt. Uh, it still just we can't seem to make it fit. It's like wearing, you know, shoes that are two sizes too small, and after a couple hours, they raise a blister. That's what living in this world feels like. But why? Why? Well, if you ask the Bible the, to answer that question for you, the, the Bible will tell us you're right. You are not made for this home. This world does not fit you at least not the way it is now. One of the, the big themes across the whole story of the Bible is the theme of home. The Bible storyline tells us that humanity was made to fit a home that was made to fit us, but we rebelled and left that home to strike out on our own and make a home of our own. Better to reign in our own home than to serve in God's, to paraphrase Dante. But God wasn't content to leave us alone in our homes, subject to our own neuroticisms. The Bible word for that is sin. Uh, he set in motion a plan to bring home back to us, a plan that came to fruition in Jesus. He left his home in order to join us in our home, died in order to bring us back from our wandering, rose again to one day fully and finally bring us home. That's the theme that we're exploring this Advent season. But today, it's only the second Sunday of Advent, so we're still in the beginning part of the story. You can tell because the left side of my Bible is very thin. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked us through the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and talked about our home. It was made for us, and we were made for it, with God at the center, and peace, and provision, and relationship, and calling, and a sense of direction to our lives. So what happened? Well, the story of humanity deciding rather rule in my own home and then serve in God's is in Genesis chapter 3. Theologians call it the fall. I'm skipping over telling the actual mechanics of that story because I want to fast forward to Genesis chapter 11, the first place in Scripture where we read about a group of people attempting to recreate the home that they lost, to make a new home for themselves. Genesis 11. 
Tower of Babel. If you want to turn there with me, it's on page 9, right at the beginning of the Black Bible under the seat in front of you. I'm going to walk us through the details of this story. And just as a heads up, there's, there's a lot more detail in here than maybe comes across in, uh, in a children's Bible, but it's hugely relevant for us. Because in the same way that the people in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the same way they tried to make their own home, we do the same thing with the same disastrous results. So Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, let's jump in. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Context, the chapter right before this, chapter 10, tells the story of the expanding of humanity into nations, all traced from Noah's descendants. If you're familiar with Genesis 1 through 11, you know, you have creation, you have the events of the fall, eventually the judgment of the flood, and then the reestablishment of humanity through Noah and his three sons. And Genesis 10 is telling the story of how those three sons spread out. It follows each of their genealogies. So chapter 11, verse 1, picks up within the context of that expansion telling the story of one of the tribes or one of the clans as it moved east. This was a fact of life for nomadic or semi-nomadic tribes as families grew and competition over land became more intensified, you know, competition over resources. Each successive generation or two would move out a little bit further looking for land that had not yet been settled, looking for better climate, greater land fertility, uh, looking for less exposure to the risk of famine, less risk of being attacked by your uncle's brother's nephew's cousin who lives three clans over and is going to come raid and take your cattle, your livestock, whatever. And eventually, Genesis 10 tells the story with enough distance and time, distinct languages arose. Three times in Genesis 10, the author makes the point of saying that the threefold divergent family tree of Noah, Shem and Ham and Japheth, they spread out into their own lands, into their own nations, by their own clans, each sort of tree with their own languages. And if Genesis 11, 1 through 9, weren't here, we wouldn't notice it missing, because the genealogies on both sides of it are following the same line of Shem. It goes down a number of generations, and then it splits with one brother before Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and then after it goes down a bunch of generations and splits the other direction, and it just tells both sides of the, of the line of Shem leading to Abraham. That's for later, but Genesis 11, 1 through 9... It's in here for a reason, to show us, to show what happened when one tribe of all of these moved into one particular region and tried to recreate the home that they lost. So, back to verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And I'm going to pause again for a comment on the vocabulary of this verse. When we're studying a language as ancient as Hebrew, this story is at least 4,000 years old or so, uh, we have to be really careful, really careful not to read uh, idioms that have a very clear meaning to them that become somewhat opaque to us. We have to be careful not to read idioms as matter-of-fact language. Um, idioms are figures of speech. You're familiar with that. You know, it's raining cats and dogs. Um, it's a piece of cake. Right? When somebody says, hey, it's a piece of cake, they don't mean that the thing they're talking about is literally one-eighth of a larger whole, uh, you know, a confectionery that we call a cake. 
Um, unless it's one of your kids coming to you with something unrecognizable and you ask, what is this? And they're like, it's a piece of cake. Um, Then they mean it literally. Otherwise, we always use the phrase idiomatically, which means it doesn't mean what it says it means. It means it's easy. It's raining cats and dogs. You're tied up in knots. All sorts of things like that are idioms. So when we look at Genesis 11, verse 1, we've got to be careful about the idiomatic language in here. There's two idioms and one term that can be used either in a very specific localized sense or in a universal sense. But we use similar idioms the same way. If you and I were talking about something and we were arguing, trying to come to an agreement on something, and we finally got there in the course of our talking, I might recognize that we've come to this point of unity and said, all right, you're finally speaking my language. Now, that doesn't mean before this, you were speaking French and I was speaking Swahili and now we've decided English. It means the content of what we're saying to one another is now aligned. We, we would use another idiom, perhaps, to say, okay, we're, we're of one mind now. We're in one accord or something like that. So, okay, we're, we're vibing, right? We're, we're of the same mind. So, when you look at Genesis 11, verse 1, now the whole earth, it's, it's literally the whole land or the whole ground, had one lip, that's what the Hebrew literally says, had one lip and the same, and one words, plural. So they're idioms. What do they mean? Well, we find out by comparing how these idioms are used in other parts of Hebrew scripture, and looking and comparing to say that you share the same lip is to say you share the same mind, you have the same understanding. To say that you, you have one words between you is to say you share the same plans, you have one plan going forward. So we can also read, or I should say, if we read this idiomatically, it feels perhaps less literal, if you understand what I mean, but it's closer to what the Hebrew author intended. Now, the whole region, whole land, ground thing, the whole region was of one mind and had one plan. Whole region was of one mind and had one plan. They're all oriented towards the same goal. And it continues in verse 2. What's the goal? Well, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Okay, so we're putting ourselves back into a region uh, that we would call at this time period Mesopotamia. That just means the land between the rivers, between Tigris and Euphrates. It's a real fertile, they call it an alluvial plain, which I think is a fancy way of saying lots of good dirt in one place. And between the Tigris and Euphrates, this, by the way, is Iraq. That's what we would call it now, south of Baghdad. Uh, Everything south of Baghdad, between the rivers, that's Shinar. This is where this one particular tribe has moved into, and they're looking at this 3,000-square-mile plain and saying, this looks like a good place to settle down. And normally, if they were attempting to preserve a nomadic or semi-nomadic existence, they would begin to spread out over it. But they decide this looks like a good place to try to set up a different kind of society. Not a brand new kind of society. Genesis 10 is telling the story over and over and over again. These people went here, they founded a nation, built a city. These people went here, they founded a nation, built a city. These people went here, they founded a nation, built a city. So they're doing what everybody's doing at this time. They're spreading out and then localizing in one place where you can set up governing structures to dispute among each other so that your your uncle's brother's cousin's neighbor's kid who tries to come and steal your livestock will get punished for it. You can multiply resources by pooling them together, and you can fortify yourself against others who may attack and want to take this same area. 
So they're doing what everyone in Genesis 10 before the story and everyone in Genesis 11 after the story is doing. They don't want to be all individually scattered. I mean, they're scattering like God said to. They're spreading out. But as they go, they want to they take this perfect-looking place, this fertile land, this alluvial plain of Shinar, and say, this is where we're going to rebuild. This is where we are going to rebuild the home that we lost. This is where we can finally make everything right and build a home that fits us. So they're going to make a home. A shared culture and history, a shared story, all of those things that go into the sense of this place is my home. This place is my home. See, this is an expanded version of what has happened in many other places, at least this beginning part of it, of people settling somewhere and saying, I want to, I want to combine these two things together, home and place. I want to tie my sense of belonging to a sense of location. I, I, I don't just want a home and a place, I want a home, I want a homeland, right? We do the same thing when, when we name ourselves, like Hoosiers. Hoosier doesn't mean you grew up around a particular group of people. It means you grew up around a particular group of people in a particular place. And so we name ourselves after the places we live. You're, you're a Hoosier, you're a Midwesterner, you're a Carmelite, you're an Indianapolitan. What do we call ourselves? Bumpkins, somebody said. I don't see how it relates to the word, but anyway. You name yourself after where you are. You want to tie your sense of belonging to your sense of location, put them together. We do the same thing when we lament jobs that force us to relocate every two or three years. I was just getting settled, and I had to move. Or when we try to understand third culture kids who grow up somewhere other than their family of origins culture, and they don't really feel like they belong in their family's home culture place or in the second culture they're part of. It's a third culture. See, we too want to tie together our sense of home and place. That's all these people wanted to do, to call a place home and know that their descendants would call it home as well. So they they built what they needed to in order to make the land, to make the plain, home. But where these guys went wrong is they wanted to do more than just make a new home. Everyone else was doing that. They were going, establishing nations, building cities. These guys wanted to recreate the home that they had lost. They wanted to rebuild Eden and the garden there. They wanted the home that they'd been kicked out of. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 4. Verse 3 talks about what kind of construction materials they're going to use. Very expensive and very specific to Mesopotamia and the alluvial plains there. Anyway, verse 4. So they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be dispersed over the face of the whole earth or the whole region. We don't want to be spread out. We want to be together in this place. So let's, make, let's build a city. Let's build a tower. A tower with its top in the heavens. Now, when you see the word city here, don't think Indianapolis. Uh, don't even think Jerusalem. This is an ancient Mesopotamian city, not, uh, not an Israelite one, not, not a modern one. And what I mean is, no one actually lived in this city. 
So in this time period, when the word city was used, it was used to describe the administrative buildings necessary to localize power in a place. So there's a tower and there's a city. The city around the tower meant a temple, a granary, uh, administrative buildings, perhaps some sort of fortifications, but that was it. No one lived in the city. It was way too expensive to build private dwellings out of kiln-fired brick and tar for mortar. Everybody lived in their mud huts outside the city where they kept their animals and farmed and all of those things. The city is the center of the power, and this city had a tower in it, a tower with its top to the heavens. Okay, now the tower, significant. It's not, a, it's not just a watchtower or a fortification. Uh, it's what we call now a ziggurat, which is a fun word to say, ziggurat. So it, picture a ziggurat here. If you, if you try to build a pyramid out of Legos, you get that sort of stair-step thing. That's what a ziggurat is, except not like a pyramid. Pyramids were tombs for the gods in Egypt. That is not what a ziggurat is. A ziggurat was just filled with dirt uh, with this stone stuff, or these, sorry, the kiln-fired bricks around it. And it was, it, the only reason it existed was as a superstructure to support a, a ramp or stairs. So imagine a ramp going all the way around it or stairs going up it in successive layers all the way to the very top where there was a small, a small hut, a small like one-room dwelling where there was a table set and a bed made, things like this. We know this from the archaeological record and all the ziggurats that have been found. The, the tower existed simply for the sake of the stairs or for the ramp and for the room at the top, not where any human would dwell or use. That's where God lived, at the top of the ziggurat. So you've got this tower with its top in the heavens. That's another idiom for very tall, and at the time period, that means almost 30 feet. So it's a really high one. I mean, towering over all the mud brick houses anyway. So uh, it's, it's, it's got its head in the clouds, right? It's a skyscraper or a cloud scratcher, if you're Polish. Uh, it, it, it's up there. Tower with the top in the heavens with a, with a little hut at top. The point is, ziggurats were not built for human use. They weren't for humans to go up to heaven. Ziggurats were built as the, as the central location where the God of heaven would come down from heaven back to earth. The other ones that have been found had names like the foundations connecting heaven and earth or stairway to heaven. That's what these buildings were called. Here's the point tower for God to dwell in and come down the stairs to the temple and the temple complex around it where he could receive the worship of his people, where his image was in that temple. He could walk and talk with his people and receive their worship. This chapter 11 is the first time in the Bible that the, the people who have been exiled from Eden decide, you know what, I'm just going to make an Eden for myself. I'm just going to recreate my own home. With enough engineering prowess and construction ability, I think we can make heaven on earth. Let's give it a try. It's the best place to make it happen. So they build a tower, a stairway, a ramp to heaven so that God will come down and dwell with them. See, the tower is sacred space. It's not for human use. It's not where people would go to worship God. It's where God lived. It's their recreation of Eden. The tower is 
Eden and the city at the base, the temple complex and everything around it is where the image of God was kept and God would come down there. It's their recreation of the Garden of Eden where God would meet with his people. See, they, they are attempting to recreate the home they lost, a home that it's not about the paradise. That was great, but it's not about the paradise. It's about God's presence. And if they can engineer God's presence among them, and they can put heaven and earth back together, bring heaven back down to earth, and finally be at home, like they were designed to. And it almost looks like it worked. It almost looks like it worked. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That is exactly what they wanted him to do. Look, we built this tower for you, and now you can come down and receive our worship. And heaven and earth are back together, except it's not the way God works. He doesn't want us engineering heaven on earth. Verse 6. Verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one lip. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Man, in other words, if, if this, this people group who is all united and of one mind around this one idea is going, to do, is going to do this, then what will prevent them from doing more and worse, from convincing themselves and everyone around them that they're the ones with sole access to God? You want to come to God? You've got to go, come through them. They're the ones who have managed to make God, force God to come back to earth to, to recreate Eden right here. So come on in, pay the toll. You too can worship. Or in other words, I'll put it a little more idiomatically. I mean, God is saying, okay, this whole making a name for yourself thing, this whole deciding how I come to you thing, yeah, we're not gonna do that anymore. Guys, start setting yourself up as a kingdom with a name and, and glory and all that as the ones who have access to God, the ones who own the gate to heaven. Well, that's not going to work. God's saying, look, I made you in my image. You don't get to recreate me in your image. I'm the one who made heaven and earth. You don't get to put them back together. That's not how this works. And so verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their lips so that one man may not understand the lip of his friend. All right, so we're going to confuse their, their whole one mind. They one mind, one plan. Everybody was united. Not anymore. We're going to go down and confuse them so they won't understand one another. In other words, we're going to get all up in their business, and by the time we're done, they won't have a clue what, we're t what they're talking about. Whether we read this as the creation of distinct languages and the beginning of languages on the earth, or we read it as, as God confusing their one mind and one purpose and making it so that everybody working together cannot agree on what should be done or how, either way, the result is the same. The people in the land of Shinar disperse over the face of the earth, the face of the whole region, the whole land, the whole ground. And they left off building the city. They're scattered, spread out. No more tower, no more Eden, no more city, no more garden, no more temple, no more presence of God, no more home. They've lost Eden again. 
because they tried to build it for themselves. Man's first recorded attempt to build, rebuild the home that we lost, to rebuild Eden, and it ends in ruin. Ends in disaster. Now, it's a story that serves a lot of functions in the Israelite imagination. But it's also a story that is very easy for us to read ourselves into. In other words, it's a story that could be told about any one of us. Estranged from a home that feels like it perfectly fits, wandering in a world where we cannot seem to ever feel like we're settled in a place or in a profession or in a relationship or in a calling that is not without some sort of conflict, some sort of discouragement, some sort of just, you know, blister-rubbing tightness. Somehow, it just we're estranged from whatever it is that we think would make us feel like we fit. And so we decide, you know what? There's a home for us deep down in our bones somewhere, and we've got to, we've got to find it. If we can't find it, we're going to make it. Christian or not, this is how most of us approach the world. Almost all of our arrangements of the things around us and the people around us and the circumstances around us are designed to try to make it so that we fit the world around us just a little bit better. We all try to make the world fit us in a couple of different ways. I mean, some of us try to make the world fit us by changing ourselves. We don't feel like we fit, right? So we we look at ourselves. The problem's not out there. It's in here. What's wrong in here? that makes it so I don't fit. And there's, there's good and healthy versions of this, counseling and therapy and taking antidepressants, things like that. But there's also the unhealthy, sort of self-medicating versions of this. When we don't feel like we fit, we turn to alcohol or pornography, CBD or serial intimacy, Netflix binges or retail therapy. We do whatever we can to try to make ourselves feel better. We work harder, try more, play harder, experience more, go go more places, try more restaurants, try more partners, try more and more and more. Maybe the next one. Maybe the next one will fit. Uh, Some of us, on the other hand, uh, we're like, no, 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 the problem's not in here. The problem's out there. We're going to fix you. If I can fix you all, then I will feel better, right? If I can get into just the right school, it will feel right. If I can find just the right job, it'll feel right. If you're a productivity nerd like me, if I can get just the right schedule and routine, finally I will feel right. Or we work on other people, we get, we get active, we get political, we get involved, we try to change people, change systems, change institutions, change the way things work. Maybe if I get angry enough or active enough or strident enough, I can with, with enough people and enough force of will, I can remake this world the way it should be, or at least the way I want it to be, so it fits me. I think probably most of us are stuck somewhere in the middle. Maybe this is a, an older generation thing. I think younger generations tend to be either, I can fix myself, or I can fix the world, and older generations tend to go, yeah, that's, I've tried that. <laughs> Just try to find some happiness, do something that matters, and take care of people you love. There is no place where you're ever going to feel like you fit. It's all an illusion. There is no home. Don't try to make this world your home. Just do what you can until you die. 
I'm not saying all older people think that way. It's just, you know, ten, the, the resignation tends to come a little more easily the more things we've tried and failed. So here's, here's the point. No matter how hard we try to change ourselves or the world around us or how resigned we get, it doesn't change the fact that we still don't fit and never feel like we fit. Like we're stuck in a home that d- wasn't made for us and we only have enough room to turn in circles. And all of the neurotic things we do to try to convince ourselves that this world does fit fit us or try to change it doesn't seem to be making it any better. We're still just spinning in circles. Because we're all trying to rebuild Eden. We're all trying to rebuild Eden. We build a tower and we say, this tower is sacred space and the thing that I love most, whether it's God or some other God substitute, your family or your job, your career, your your calling or uh, the amount of money you make or whatever it is, we put into that tower and we say, if you live there, if you live here in this sacred space in my heart and you never abandon it and you come down and you let me worship you and you give me everything that I want in return, I will worship you and I'll finally I'll feel like I've made a home that fits me. We build our towers and we build our cities, our temple complexes around those towers and we say, look, I've, I've manufactured and engineered this whole existence that, that is entirely designed to keep me from realizing I don't fit. And eventually, the edifice will crumble. The tower and the city will be left in ruin. Because God does the same thing for us that he did for them. He says, that's not, that's not where heaven on earth comes from. That's not how you make a home. And so we're not going to do any more of that. Look at verse 9. Verse 8, the Lord dispersed them, they left off building the city. Verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And if you were Hebrew at heart, you'd be chuckling at the irony in the verse. Therefore, the city and the tower are called Babel. Everywhere else, that word Babel is translated Babylon, Israel's greatest enemy. The complete anti-God culture that comes to symbolize everything that is against God and is only ever finally fully, uh, fully overthrown all the way at the very end in Revelation 18. Babylon reigns for this long. So that's where these guys came from, trying to make heaven on earth. So the city and the tower were called Babylon, right? She was a good Hebrew nose. You know, Babylon named themselves in Akkadian, they named themselves the gate of God, Babili. It means the gate of God. Here's the guys who thought they were going to make the gateway that would reconnect heaven and earth, and they did, and then God showed up. <laughs> they weren't expecting that. Scattered them. Which is funny, too, because they call themselves Babili, right? Babylons, which sounds a whole lot like the, the Hebrew word Balili, which means confused ones. It's like these guys think that they're the ones who own the gates of the gods, and they're really just the idiots, the Babylons, Babylonians, more like Babylonians. So all of that is going on in the background here. They say, look, this is what, what God does when you try to make a name for yourself. You try to set yourself up as the ones who own access to God, who bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth. When you try to get the presence of God on your own terms, 
try to make a name for yourself. Yeah, you end up with a name, all right. Confused ones, scattered, neurotic, despairing, resigned, dispersed, disintegrated. And if we stopped reading there at the end of Genesis 11, we would be left with no hope at all. This world will never fit us, and nothing we do can ever make it feel like Eden again. None of the technology we invent, none of the societies we build, none of the families that we nurture, nothing we do can ever make this world feel like Eden again. But we're just at the beginning of the story. You know that because the left side of my Bible is very thin. We're just at the beginning of the story, and the very next chapter starts like this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your land and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth, the whole of the earth, will be blessed. God's saying to these proto-Babylonians, you want a home? Do you want a home? God says, a home that fits? Don't build one for yourself. Don't build one for yourself. That will never work. If you want a home, come live in mine. A home you build for yourself will only ever be a shelter for your neuroticisms. But a home that I invite you into, that is made just for you, is a home that fits. We're going to read that part of the story next week. Let's pray. Father, in our quiet moments, we recognize that all of the good things, each and every one of the good things you have given to us here in this world that is not our home, we experience them, we, we put weight on them, wanting them to make us feel like we have arrived, that we're there, that we're, that we're home with everything we pour into that word. And even in the midst of the experience, we, we know it's going to end, and that it can't satisfy. Father, you made us for a home that we left. Draw us back. Draw us back to the home that you made for us. And help us to see Jesus in his first and his second coming as the one who has come to bring us home. Jesus, who came as an infant and entered into our home and lived in the same small, confined space that we live, so that by his death he could break it wide open, by his resurrection call us home, and by his eventual return again bring home to us. And give us hope, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.